Hello and welcome to the Ant Hill podcast from the conversation with me, Annabelle Bly. As usual, we'll be digging into stories from the world of academia. And this episode, we've taken our cue from the Cambridge Festival of Ideas, which this year has the theme of extremes. As the organisers point out, it really does feel like we're living in an age where the world is getting more and more extreme. We'll be speaking to some academics who took part in the festival, and we'll also be talking about extreme weather with award-winning climate scientist Joel Gerges. But first, it feels like the obvious place to start is with politics. Extremism is on the rise around the world, with extreme populist views gaining support everywhere from Brazil to the US to the Philippines. And Europe has not been immune. Election after election seems to result in a new far-right party making a play for the government. The Conversation's politics editor, Laura Hood, looked into some of these new parties to find out how they've managed to assimilate themselves into European political life. Europe is experiencing a major political shift. Parties that might once have been considered extreme are becoming more mainstream. The Front National in France, now known as the National Rally, the Anti-Islam Party for Freedom in the Netherlands, and most recently the Sweden Democrats, have all come to occupy a formal place in their nation's political scene. These far-right groups are often highly active at the local level, capitalising on their popularity to move into the European Parliament and then maybe to their national parliaments too. Some of these parties are openly racist or Islamophobic, and some have violent origins. Others are more subtle in their methods, but are nevertheless antagonistic towards the status quo. Some remain extreme, while others tone down their external image to appeal to voters, all the while retaining a hyper-nationalist ethos underneath. It's important to remember that far-right groups continue to attract only a minority of votes in each country, but the particularities of many European political systems seem to be creating the conditions they need to break through into the public conscience more than they might in other parts of the world. And as a combined force, they do seem to be changing Europe. The extreme is not quite the norm, but what many consider to be extreme views are becoming normalised. These parties are challenging some of the core values of the European project. After years of free movement, borders are springing up again, and after decades of presuming that the European project benefits everyone, many are now turning away. Probably the most extreme of the far-right parties to make it into the mainstream of European politics is Golden Dawn, a group which started life as a small street movement and now has 17 seats in Greece's national parliament. Golden Dawn's roots are unambiguously neo-Nazi. It emerged in the late 1970s as a small organisation of people who used Nazi imagery in their publications and dress and expressed overt hatred of foreigners. Golden Dawn has associations with football hooliganism and its members have been convicted of violent crimes. Sophia Tipaldu, Marie Curie researcher at the University of Manchester, recently wrote for the conversation about Golden Dawn's early tactics. One of their key moves in the 2000s was to take over a whole neighbourhood of Athens and instigate violent attacks on immigrants there. The group was not interested in running for election. 
are not participating in this democratic farce as they consider it to be. So they're not, they're, they do not believe in democracy. And they were striving for the establishment of, a, of an authoritarian system. But in the 90s, the leadership changed its opinion. It decided to run for election. And in order to do this, it moderated its discourse. So instead of openly talking about the establishment of a dictatorial system, it started using some kind of keywords in order to replace this this uh, hard Nazi rhetoric. For instance, uh, one of them is using the term illegal migrants instead of racial enemies. Golden Dawn was beginning to see other like-minded parties make headway in Europe. Its leaders saw an opportunity to replicate their success in Greece. So it is also following the European far-right mainstream, if you want. So it's the example of the new rights that Father Le Pen established in France and other uh, successful far-right parties followed. The Austrian uh, Freedom Party, uh, Tom Wilders' uh, party in the Netherlands, for instance. So all the successful examples of the 90s also influenced uh, Golden Dawn's preferences and change of rhetoric. And soon understood that if it wants to, to make it to the public uh, sphere, then it should abandon dangerous and non-political correct definitions and go for what other successful far-right parties have done. And this is the anti-immigration rhetoric. These are also references to the threats of foreigners and immigrants, uh, not only to the social system of of Greece and Europe as a whole, but also to its cultural values. Then in 2012, when Greece faced economic ruin, Golden Dawn really made gains. First of all, Golden Dawn voters of 2012 voted for Golden Dawn because they were opposing the the, the austerity measures of the Greek government. Second of all, because they were opposing the Eurozone. And third, because they were rejecting the existing political parties. Some other factors that played an important role for the rise of Golden Dawn was the decline in the levels of the political trust since 2008 that were accelerated since the crisis and the decline in, in the trust of legislative and judiciary institutions. Golden Dawn also used grassroots action and protest and uh, managed to achieve what no other far-right party of openly neo-Nazi characteristics has achieved in Western Europe up to that point. And so a party that started out seeking to emulate the Nazis and has a record of using violent tactics has ended up being accepted into the mainstream. Golden Dawn has never been in government, but given that it has been an openly fascist organisation in its past and has proven links to violent crimes, you might think it pretty extraordinary that it has any formal place in national politics at all. As it stands, Golden Dawn is the fourth largest party in the Hellenic Parliament. Golden Dawn is a particularly extreme example of ultra-nationalist parties, and many don't like to make comparisons between it and other far-right groups in Europe. But there are patterns in its story that are playing out all over the continent at the moment. In Austria and in Italy, far-right parties have actually managed to make it into government, 
The Italian case, where Matteo Salvini's Lega party now governs as part of an uneasy coalition, is particularly interesting, as I found out when I spoke to Anna Bull, Professor of Italian Politics and History at the University of Bath. First of all, I think we should clarify that they dropped the name Lega Nord only in 2017. Until then, they still maintain this regionalist stance. And uh, I think it should be recognised that even now, their electoral strongholds are in the north. The Lega started life as the Lega Nord, a group primarily concerned with regional autonomy for the north of Italy. It wasn't necessarily an extreme party at the beginning of its existence. But when Matteo Salvini took over as leader in 2013, he recognised that he could capitalise on discontent about immigration and opposition to post-financial crash austerity in order to win votes. Since about 2012, Salvini has tapped into many of the key themes that drive some of the more notorious far-right parties in Europe – and has begun to appeal more widely to voters across Italy. The Lega is firmly anti-immigration and anti-Europe. It might not be as overtly racist as some of the other far-right political parties operating in Europe right now, but it is nativist, populist and protectionist. And as the dominant half of a governing coalition with the relatively new five-star movement, it is effectively in charge of one of the European Union's largest economies. Chi sceglie la Lega sceglie un concetto chiaro. Prima gli italiani. Prima gli the position of the Lega on immigration has always been very exclusionary and very hostile to the arrival of, of migrants in Italy. But in the past, it was expressed more perhaps in economic terms, whereas more recently, the Lega has embraced a much more identity, cultural type of of stance. So the migrants come to Italy and they threaten the culture, the identity of Italians. And this resonates with with the electorate throughout the country. Salvini has clearly recognised that there is potential electoral support among people who feel that the European Union has not offered enough support to the Mediterranean countries on the front line of the refugee crisis. So that's what he realised, that there is a hostility to migrants coming to Italy for these reasons, and also that Italians felt they were being invaded by migrants and that Europe was not helping Italy. Europe was leaving Italy isolated to bear the brunt of of the arrival of migrants from Northern Africa. And this is what Salvini has capitalised on. As Interior Minister, Salvini has introduced policies that make life harder and harder for migrants in Italy. In a recent outburst, he suggested that little ethnic shops, apparently referring to grocery stores owned by migrants, should close at 9pm. He described them as meeting places for criminals. He isn't inciting violence directly, but he seems to be creating an atmosphere that legitimises antagonism, at the very least. The Lega has a strong tradition of using strong language and compromising language, of of using uh, even violent type of language. So the Lega has never resorted to physical violence, but it has used a very radical, very strong language, breaking taboos in the way it uh, it uses uh, their words and it presents issues as problems, as threats for, for the Italian population. 
So while the Lega does not share the neo-Nazi roots of a group like Golden Dawn, there are parallels in their strategies and priorities. Parties like these aggressively interrogate European values, encourage ethno-nationalism, and crucially, push other parties to the right. And it's on this last front that their impact may be most profoundly felt, suggests Sten van Kessel, a lecturer in European politics at Queen Mary University of London. Mainstream parties sort of adopting some of the policies of radical right-wing parties. So in that sense, you see that some centre-right or governments that are dominated by centre-right parties, they're not that different in terms of their immigration policies in comparison with with governments that include uh, radical right-wing parties. Europe, it seems, is remarkably fertile ground for fringe parties. Most countries have fairly fragmented political scenes. Most parliaments are home to a large variety of parties and coalition governments are common compared to other parts of the world. That's been a key ingredient, not only in the growth of extreme parties, but also in the normalisation of their rhetoric. Uh, most European countries have, unlike the UK, they have proportional representation electoral system, which means that parliaments are much more fragmented. So it's very hard for single parties to win an absolute majority of the seats, hence they need to form coalitions. And this is, well, one sign, you might say, of the mainstreaming of, of radical right politics. So that not only relates to uh, the willingness to form coalitions with these parties, but also the fact that mainstream parties, especially of the centre-right, adopt a lot of their policy proposals. They might be less radical or extreme in their rhetoric and also with regard to certain policy areas related to immigration, but still you see that, that they, you might assume, fear the competition from the radical right and the typical reaction is to adopt a lot of their programmes. Stein says these parties are here to stay. Clearly you see that these parties become very important players in certain countries. And they're also here to stay. It's a, it's a new party family, or at least a party family that has its roots in the 80s. Uh, but populist radical right parties will become uh, sort of an ordinary part, even though they're extraordinary in some ways. They will become uh, an ordinary presence in party systems across Europe. More moderate political operatives therefore need to consider how they respond to this change. Do they adapt their own positions to stave off the electoral threat? Or do they find some other way to survive in an age of extremes? Well, I mean, here, mainstream parties have a big responsibility. It's up to them to decide how to respond uh, to these parties, if they feel necessary to respond uh, to them at all. Um, I'm not a politician, so it's not my task to say what these parties should or shouldn't do, but they may um, they may be wise to realize that immigration is not the only theme that is currently important uh, on, on, on the political agenda. And they should perhaps also realize that trying to adopt many of the policies of the, of the radical right is not going to uh, lead to um, the radical right vanishing from them from the political stage in in Europe. Far-right parties look set to be a fixture in European politics for the foreseeable future. We can expect them to start shaping European Union policies according to their own values, especially when it comes to immigration. The fragmented party systems of European nations make it possible for a variety of political parties to be represented. But that has also created the conditions for radical parties to become part of everyday life. The question now 
is how many more will make it into government, and whether, once in power, their Euroscepticism and nationalistic tendencies could even break the European project apart from the inside. Laura Hood there, The Conversation's politics editor. From extreme views and policies, we switch now to extreme conflict situations. Our arts and culture editor, Jonathan Est, spoke to two panellists talking at the Cambridge Festival of Ideas about their experiences of living through extremes. One spent much of her childhood in Gaza, and the other did research in Egypt and eastern Ukraine during uprisings there. Google the question, how much of the world is in conflict? And you get a devastating answer. According to the Global Peace Index, which is produced by the Institute for Economics and Peace, the global level of peace has deteriorated in 2018 for the fourth year running. Conditions are deteriorating in more countries than are showing an improvement. From the relative safety of the UK, we get a brief nightly window into the lives of those living in the conflict zones via the television news. Many of Yemen's children have only ever known war. In Syria now, where rebel forces in Idlib are being targeted by shelling and airstrikes this week by Russian-backed government forces. The worst may yet be to come for the rebels. What is it like to live and work in an extreme situation? Somewhere like Gaza, Syria or eastern Ukraine, where long-running conflicts have caused so many deaths and blighted the lives of so many more people? Or to live through violent political upheavals, like the 2011 Arab Spring Revolution in Egypt, when the long-standing dictator... Hosni Mubarak was ousted, ushering in years of unrest and oppression, the effects of which are still being felt now. Sophie Roborg has researched violence against doctors, health workers and medical infrastructure in Syria, eastern Ukraine and Egypt. Her interest was initially piqued by events in Cairo during the Arab Spring uprisings. It started in 2011, basically on the 25th of January with the 18 days that led to the ouster of Hosni Mubarak. And what I studied particularly was that period between the 18 days, the start of the revolution and the huge crackdown that happened uh, on the uh, Muslim Brotherhood sit-ins in uh, Rabah al-Adawiyah Square, where in one day more than a thousand people were killed. Basically, the current president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, was in charge. In Rabah Mosque, what was a refuge for women and children became a place filled with fear. Sophie had been working for an international think tank at The Hague when the Arab Spring began. She found herself watching and wondering what motivated the medics, most of them local people, who rushed in to help people at the risk of their own lives. What I'm particularly interested in is the way in which local doctors, the local village GP, the local kind of like surgeon in the provincial hospital, people who never chose to be a health worker in a war situation yeah. or in a, in a like situation of, of, of profound domestic unrest like in, like in Egypt, how they respond to this. A lot of people, they look at organizations like the Red Cross or MSF, but when you become a doctor at MSF, you, you literally sign on to do work in a conflict zone or in a disaster zone. That is not the case for people who, you know, who just have a war come to their community. She saw a pattern playing out across the Middle East and in other conflict zones where doctors and other health workers in the community who are bound by professional ethics to help the sick and injured were finding themselves targeted and their work politicised. So I was really interested also in 
who, who are the doctors who do this? Who are the doctors who decide not to do this? Who are the uh, health workers who are kind of the coordinating ones? What is their background? How do they kind of look at their own work? Are they very political? And if they are political, is that problematic when it comes to like questions of impartiality, neutrality, treating everybody equally, you know, because technically you have to treat everybody equally. You can't just be like, okay, you know, you're, you're somebody who sympathizes with the Islamic State, I'm not going to help you. There, there are a lot of kind of like moral frameworks in which they have to work, but there's also a lot of pressures on them from the community because people may not always understand why you are helping in what they consider to be the enemy. This often ended up putting medics at loggerheads with their own family and friends. So for instance in Egypt, you had doctors who were working on Tahrir Square. And sometimes, you know, there would be somebody found like a, a provocator from the government on Tahrir Square, or somebody who people recognized as, as a spy, as, as they would call it. And you would have a situation in which they would start beating that person up and doctors would interfere. And, and start treating that person and often receive a lot of backlash from the protesters because protesters were like, this is somebody who tries to hurt us and, and, and you're trying to help it. So it was very, it, it is very difficult and there are a lot of like loyalties and a lot of like competing forces coming into play. And I wanted to figure out how do people navigate that? Travelling to conflict zones meant putting yourself into unpredictable situations with all the danger that accompanies that. I'm an absolute warrior and I'm a complete catastrophizer when it comes to, to taking risks. Even so, there was one moment where things got pretty scary. I remember one situation where we were passing a checkpoint and it was, uh, it was kind of dark and, and there would be days in which I would pass like 20 army checkpoints in Ukraine, for instance. And what, what happened was that the driver got stopped quickly after the checkpoint and then got disoriented. And instead of driving along the way we were going, he turns around somehow and he drives again towards the checkpoint. Starts, um, we're being waved down because the way that it works is that around the checkpoint, you have these kind of roadblocks. And when they want you to proceed to, to talk to you, they, they wave you with a, a torch. Like they kind of like go up and down with their arm and they're like, yeah, you can come now, it's your turn. And all of a sudden this guy realizes that he has turned around, has come back and, and makes a beeline for it. I remember at that moment, I was like, oh dear Lord, you know, what's gonna happen? Because this is of, of course hugely suspicious. So both my research assistant and I are sitting in the car like, and, and, and gasping and kind of like, oh dear, what's going to happen? And, and luckily nothing happened, but it was very much, even if you prepare everything so well and you're being so careful, then there are always these wild cards. Palestinian academic Mona Jabril didn't have to leave home to find danger. As a university lecturer in Gaza, the possibility of being caught by an Israeli bombardment was something she had to live with daily. Mona's family arrived in Gaza in 1990 from Kuwait, where her parents had been working, her father at the Ministry of Higher Education and her mother as a teacher. They were on a trip to Gaza to see relatives in 1990, when Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, a move that started the first Gulf War. 
Mona's mother and father lost their jobs as a result of the war and the family found themselves stranded in Gaza. Mona was just 13 at the time. The first three years in Gaza, the Palestinian Intifada uh, or uprising was still going on. For me, as someone who was 13 years old, it was scary. Israeli soldiers and jeeps were in the streets uh, in my way to and back from school. Sometimes soldiers invaded our school and neighborhood and covered people's eyes and detained them in front of us. There was frequent gunfire and they were stopping us in the streets. For a few years, Mona and her family lived in a precarious situation in Gaza. The Intifada was in full swing and on October the 8th, 1990, 20 people were killed in Jerusalem. That was the Intifada's bloodiest day. For three years, as Mona studied in high school, she had to adjust to a bleak new reality. It was completely different from Kuwait. I was struggling to make sense of all <laughs> these uh, new things that I was seeing around. Israeli occupation became a reality. The uprising became a reality. But for me, as someone who's new to the context, I wasn't really able to understand all this, especially that my family weren't really so political, you know, they were focused on education. For, for my family, education is very, very important. And, uh, and it's the way you contribute to your society. But then things began to change. In September 1993, the Prime Minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, and the PLO leader, Yasser Arafat, signed a treaty and shook hands on the White House lawn. Hope for peace was in the air in Gaza. Welcome to this great occasion of history and hope. Today, we bear witness to an extraordinary act in one of history's defining dramas. Between 1993 and 1994, and with the signing of the Oslo Agreement, the situation started to shift. This was the period when uh, I was studying for my Tawjihi exams, the final year of uh, secondary school, the A-levels. And even I was studying for the exams and there were cars uh, celebrating and, and I was annoyed from the noise because I wanted to focus. <laughs> and my dad used to say, oh, are you going to stop the peace process for your exams? Mona completed high school and studied English at university, after which she worked as a teacher in government schools in Gaza. In 2005, she travelled to Oxford University to study for a master's degree. Her subject was on higher education in Gaza and she won a side foundation prize graduating from Oxford with a distinction. In 2006, Mona returned to Gaza, intent on passing on some of her expertise as a university lecturer at two of Gaza's universities. But by this stage, things were deteriorating again. Mona returned to find Gaza locked into a cycle of violence and disruption. Everyday life for a young university lecturer was challenging. For instance, you want to organise a seminar, you needed to print... You know, you have to invite people, you have to uh, book a place, but actually you cannot guarantee that on the day you will be able to run the seminar because anything could happen. And this makes you feel very frustrated. Um, but in addition to that, we are dealing with overcrowded classes. Like I, I used to teach around 1000 students per semester. And the power cut makes this very, very hard as well. I don't want to say that the power cut is responsible for all the difficulties, but I'm saying from my own experience, 
I, someone who was dealing with a problem of overcrowded class, and then you have 1,000 assignments or you have 1,000 exams to correct, and you have a few weeks to do that because the new semester needs to open for registration. And then, of course, there was a constant fear of Israeli bombardment. It can happen at any time. I mean, my memory of Gaza, the basic memory of bombardment relates to 2008 uh, war. It was horrible. There's still no respite for the people of Gaza. The hospitals are filling up with the injured and the morgues are still filling up with the dead. Inside your house, you really don't know whether at any point in time there will be a bomb falling. You don't know to go to the kitchen would be safer or to go to this room would be safer or to sit would be safer or to walk in the street would be safer. <laughs> so it's, it's very, very, really very disturbing. It's a fear that has followed Mona to Cambridge where she's finishing a PhD in higher education. For me, even though I know I am in the UK, I keep reminding myself I'm Cambridge. But every time the plane hovers, it reminds me of the sound of the F-16. It's um, because over Gaza, you don't really hear any planes anyway, <laughs> except the <laughs> jet fighters. And so here, whenever I hear the plane, it just reminds me of all the feelings, you know, of fear, of anger. Even if I'm working on my computer, really engaged in, in what I'm doing, it will disturb me. And the other day there was even fireworks. And the fireworks reminds me of the light bombs because of their sound, but also of the color. For Sophie, some of the most stringent safeguards she had to take were not for herself, but for the doctors and healthcare workers she interviewed for her research. The data she was gathering could, after all, be deadly if it fell into the wrong hands. Even encrypted, the prospect of losing her data was for Sophie a constant worry while working around conflict zones. That computer does not leave my sight. I literally sleep with that thing. Like, it is within a one metre radius from me at all times. I have, I bought from my, from my own budget, from my own money, I bought additional computers that never go online so that I know that they can't be broken into through the internet or so because they literally never are online and they don't leave my sight. Mona, meanwhile, faces some tough decisions about her future. Sitting in her back garden in Cambridge on a sunny afternoon in autumn, it's hard for her to think about the prospects of returning to Gaza. My plan is very unclear. <laughs> so this is why I, I describe myself as an astronaut in my PhD research. Because it's uh, this binary position that either you are in or out. And this is making a decision really, really hard. Because if you decide to go back, it means that you are again under the similar conditions of bombardment, of restrictions which affects you not only academically but also psychologically if you if you stay outside 
on the other hand, it means maybe I'm not gonna see my mother and my sisters for another, I don't know, I'm now six years, so <laughs> I don't know. I'm not gonna see my friends. I'm not gonna be part of, directly part of the community. Mona and Sophie were talking about their experiences as part of a panel discussion at the Cambridge Festival of Ideas. This year's theme is Extremes, and it's on until October 28th. That was Jonathan Est, The Conversation's Arts and Culture Editor. Hi, my name's Philip Martin. I'm the host of a new show called Heat and Light. We bring you the stories you may not have heard about last century's most pivotal year, 1968. We have a pointing device called a mouse. (laughs) Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? That hot, tense summer was filled with rebellion. People took to the streets outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Columbia University students took over their campus. But all that heat, that anger, that rebellion, 1968 brought us some light too. We're going to bring you these stories from the people who know them best, who were so deeply impacted by the events of that year that they made it their lives work to study them. Tune in starting August 28th, right here. It's Heat and Light. You can now listen to all seven episodes of the Heat and Light podcast series from our colleagues over at The Conversation US. Check it out. Now, for our final part of this episode, we turn to the weather. Extreme weather has become the face of climate change. While it's tough to visualise a one-degree rise in global mean surface temperatures... Anyone can see that hurricanes, floods and droughts are becoming more common and more intense. 2018 has been packed with these extremes. Here in the UK, we had the Beast from the East in late February, a Siberian snowstorm that brought unusually low temperatures. This was followed by a severe drought and the hottest summer on record. Then an Atlantic hurricane went rogue and turned northwards, its remnants smashing into the British Isles. But things are rather different in a country that is already pushing the extremes of human habitation. Take Australia, for instance, where days well over 30 degrees are already the norm, and much of the landmass is a harsh desert. Next, we're going to play part of an interview that our colleague over at The Conversation Australia, Madeleine de Gabriel, did with University of Melbourne climate scientist Joelle Gerges. She recently published the book Sunburn Country, The History and Future of Climate Change in Australia. things that really jumped out at me reading this book especially in the early stages where you're describing the colonists and the first fleet coming to Australia and how they're dealing with this crazy climate that's completely different to anything they've ever come across it's a real narrative there's this real kind of epic sweep of droughts and floods and all the rest of it was that you know a a change for you did you feel like you were writing a narrative history 
I that was really the the hope is that I would come up with a bit of a, a narrative, as you say, because I think what's been missing from the climate change discussion that we've been having more broadly is that we don't really have a national story about climate change. I think sometimes people can dismiss it as, oh well, we're the land of drought and flooding rains, and we've been through it all before, and so therefore, you know, there's nothing to worry about, nothing to see here, move on. But it's not quite. That's not quite the story. I think another thing that often gets lost on people is that Australia is actually considered the most vulnerable nation in the developed world when it comes to climate change. Now, Professor Ross Garneau came out and said this a decade ago, and somehow we don't seem to be listening, but we are really vulnerable for a range of different reasons. And one of those reasons is that we're a really arid continent. We sit in the subtropical um, desert belt of the world, so along with places like South Africa and, and parts of South America. So we're inherently already very dry. And so our relationship with water is quite precarious to begin with. And so that is, that's a real issue. And when we, we do have a lot of this temperature and rainfall variability. And so if we start warming Australian climate, then we, we're starting to see extremes that haven't played out, you know, in, in a really long while. And even if they have played out in the past, these are usually in times where human civilizations didn't exist. So it's not helpful when people say, oh, well, we've been through, uh, you know, ice ages before and things like that. Well, that that's not really an apples to apples comparison. At the, heart, the height of the last ice age, probably about 5 million people around the whole planet. So it's a population of Sydney spread out along across the whole globe, which is is really not very much. And people were living in a very low-tech society. But now we've got like 7.4 billion people on the planet and living in, in modern industrialized cities and, and, and lifestyles and all that sort of thing. And so it's not really... A, you know, a one-to-one -one comparison, and I think people need to understand there's a lot of human vulnerability now in the in the actual um, in the climate system as well. So that's one of the things that I think is is really important. And so when it comes to climate change in Australia, we are the land of drought and flooding rains. Absolutely, no one contests that. But what we are concerned about is that we've actually warmed by a degree, and seven tenths of that's actually happened since 1950. And so most of our warming is happening really rapidly. And so what that is doing is accelerating the rates of change, those natural background rates of change that we might expect. And what that does is actually amplify our climate variability. So I like to think of it as climate variability on steroids. And so everything just becomes a little bit more intense and extreme. And, and really, for a country that's already quite intense and extreme, we're talking about that's when we start seeing record-breaking conditions every other uh, season or year, as we're seeing right now. I mean... It, it seems as um, every single month and every single year we are breaking records and it, it's just, uh, it, it fundamentally tells you that the climate system has shifted. Something that really jumped out at me again in the book is the story of, um, you tell the story of some hideous floods that decimated Brisbane over and over again during 1893 mm. and there was a chap called Henry Somerset who owned a farm that was up the river and uphill from Brisbane and he would see the these tropical cyclones hit and these walls of water come rushing down the river towards 
uh, Brisbane, which caused huge devastation, and twice he sent a rider galloping down to warn them, and twice they almost completely ignored him until eventually they set him up as an official flood warning station. Did you identify a bit with Henry Somerset? <laughs> That's a really nice passage from the book that I actually enjoyed um, writing because it was one of those things that I guess sometimes the climate science community can feel like we're coming out saying things that perhaps people don't want to hear. And it is a bit of a difficult position to be in because really what we are trying to do is keep people out of harm's way. So just like the writer that set out in the middle of the 1893 floods to tell people to, because the telegraph wasn't enough then to be able to transmit the message to let people know that a wall of water was coming their way and was going to inundate um, downtown Brisbane. And I, and I think as climate scientists, we can see, we're able to read all these different uh, symptoms, if you like, of, of the climate situation and be able to tell people that we really have a major situation on our hands and we really do need to act in terms of trying to reduce the more dangerous levels of climate change that we're going to experience. And I think it's really important to remember that this isn't out of our hands just yet. science is crystal clear, our, ch- our climate is changing. But the good news is, and that's in the second half of the book, is that everything that we need to turn this around already exists. Now, I think for me, that was a really um, heartening part of the book to write because I realised that the solutions are all there. And I think as a scientist, I hadn't delved so much into that literature. But when I did, I realised that there's some very bright minds from the CSIRO and other university groups and think tanks from all over the world have really got behind this to, to figure out, can we actually solve this? And it turns out that we can, but we just need the political will. And this is the thing that I, I guess I find frustrating. There are a lot of people that really care about this. And I think... Um, it's just important to remember that we're not alone with this and that um, I do believe that wanting to safeguard the uh, future livability of the planet is not a fringe issue. I would argue that is a completely uh, you know, rational thing to want to do. And also for people that have children, I mean, what kind of future do we want to leave our little ones in terms of you know, diabolical future summers of 50 degrees in places like Melbourne and Sydney? I mean, we're talking about unsafe and dangerous levels of heat. We're talking about no Great Barrier Reef really in any recognisable form that anyone who's seen it previously would have um, would have experienced. And, and I think that that is a profound loss uh, for all of humanity to go through that when the solutions exist already. I want to thank you for writing a book that just really highlights that, all right, it's tough, but we've got some grit and we've got some determination do you think ultimately this is was this a happy thing for you to do i mean you bet i think thank you for raising that because i think it does highlight the the inherent resilience of a lot of australians you know we have an incredible history and there is a lot of ingenuity and mateship and all of that really amazing um those amazing qualities that I think we all really value as Australians, that we are capable of rising to this challenge. And you see it any time there is a natural disaster that plays out. I mean, the SES service is actually made up mostly of volunteers. People are willing to get out on the line and, and rescue their neighbours and help their communities. And I think this is what I, I really put a lot of hope in. 
I think we can do this. And I think it is the largest cultural revolution that's taking place on the planet right now. And the question is, do we want to get on board? I think we really do. That was our colleague in Australia, Madeline de Gabriel. Check out the latest episode of The Conversation Australia's podcast, Trust Me, I'm an Expert, to hear more about how Australia is coping with extreme weather. And you should totally subscribe to that podcast too on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. That's it for this episode of The Anthill. A big thanks to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Anthill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. You can read more insight and analysis by academics online at theconversation.com, where you can also sign up to our free daily newsletter. And very exciting news, you can now listen to The Anthill on Spotify. So go follow us there if that suits you. Lastly, if you're an iTunes listener, please, please, please give us a review there. It really does help. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.